And if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28, the very end of the book of Acts. I hope that in going through this, even though it's been a little bit different in the way that we've approached it, not doing every chapter and every verse, I hope that as we've gone through the book of Acts, it's been encouraging and maybe even challenging to you as we think through what the church is supposed to look like. I mean, above all, we have to have an understanding that the church has clarity In a time of confusion, what a beautiful, blessed thing it is that the church of Jesus Christ has clarity about what we are supposed to be doing. We are to be about the business of making disciples, of preaching the gospel, and of training men and women up into maturity in their faith. And how beautiful, again, it is to know that we don't do that on our own strength. That God has given us the resources that we need. That not only has he gifted each and every individual believer, but that he is sovereignly placed in his wisdom and in his authority the right people in the right body at the right time to do exactly what he has called the church collectively to do. And so we do all things through his strength and to his glory. All those things that mark the church are done through his strength and for his glory. It's through his strength that the church serves. It's through his power that we're united. It's through his courage that we're made bold. It's through his love that we're made generous with one another. It's through his ability and equipping that we lead It's the power of the Spirit that we change, that we become more and more like Christ, all through the power of the Spirit. And last week we looked at the church and waiting. In the middle of a tumultuous, uncertain world, the church is called to be a people who wait differently. When the path forward isn't clear, when Paul didn't know where to go other than there were a number of no's, he knew that he kept walking. We're able to wait with persistent, constant obedience. Even when we don't know the direction God wants us to go, he's given us enough for today to take continuing steps of obedience. Obedience to do what we know we're supposed to do right now. To preach the gospel. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love others as ourselves. And what about those times when we can't just go on and do the next thing? I mean, Paul found himself in prison for a period of two years. He couldn't keep walking to the next city to do the ministry. Well, Paul worked where he was at, and you and I have the same encouragement. We are able to work right where we're at. In whatever circumstance you're in, you're not waiting for God to move to the place where you can be obedient. God has given us a work to do right where we're at. In the job, in the home, in the neighborhood, in the relationship, in whatever circumstance it is, God has given us work to do. We can preach the gospel. We make disciples. We trust God to do exactly what He will. So often you and I feel stuck. We feel trapped. We need to remember the God that we serve, a God who is not limited by our circumstances, a God who's not caught off guard by those things that we see as hindrances. So we work exactly where He's placed us. We love our spouses. We work in our jobs as unto the Lord. We train up our children We serve the body of Christ, and we trust that God will do exactly as he intends to. And this morning, we're going to be at the very end of the book of Acts. It'll be our last look together at the book of Acts. And today, we're going to be looking at the church's hope. And so if you're not there already, I want you to find your way to the book of Acts, chapter 28. And I'm going to start reading in verse 11, just to kind of set the stage for the middle of where we're going. It says, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as its figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Rhegium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli, and there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. 
And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God, and he took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we enter this Advent season, uh, that we approach it with hearts that are drawn to worship. With all that's going on, uh, the time and the season bring busyness. Lord, give us great purpose in that. I pray that in all the planning and the preparation, uh, that our hearts would be joyful for all the right reasons. That we would worship you, that we would have hope and joy and peace because of what you've done. Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your word, not because we're smart enough to understand them, but because you are kind and gracious, and you opened our blind eyes, our stopped-up ears, and you've made our dead hearts alive in Christ. So, Lord, through the power of your word and your spirit, Help us not only to see, but to be obedient. And we need your help to do all of these things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. It's hard to believe that Advent is already here. We have a candle lit, and it seems like we just got back from summer camp. And I don't know what happened to the year before that, but we're already approaching the end. And this next four weeks, we're working through those four main themes that are represented by the candles there, hope and peace, love and joy. And while those themes are very, very familiar to us, we do them every year. Many of us do them in our homes. We've seen them all over the place. Uh, we need the reminders because we're a people that are quick to forget. It's a good time to think and reflect on those themes that we know are important, but they seem to somehow get drowned out by the madness that is just everyday life in the world today. And today we're talking about hope and how desperately... Our world needs hope, and how often you and I need reminders that there is a hope. The sad reality is we live in a world that is often hopeless. In working with the youth, I'm kind of drawn more to reading about what's happening in schools, maybe more than I would. But you read that a higher percentage than ever before of our teens and our youth feel hopeless. The kids that you minister to and with in this church go to schools where they are surrounded by peers who have an overwhelming sense of hopelessness as they look at the world around them. Doesn't stop there. We go into uh, people that you ask and polls that are taken and you see that a higher percentage than ever of people are simply hopeless in their economic situation. They might be getting by, but there is a smaller and smaller group of people that are hopeful that they will find things like a home to buy here in California or any kind of financial stability. Beyond that, you take the turmoil that's kind of enveloped our nation between a pandemic and election results and midterms over the last two years. And everything you look at says that there is a shrinking group of people that are hopeful that we can ever have anything that, that resembles peace and unity and prosperity and stability in our nation. And yet, the church is called to be a hopeful people. And you need to understand when I say a hopeful people, I don't mean a people that use the word hope like the world uses hope. I hope things get better. For those of you that are in school still, I hope that I get an A on this test. I did nothing to prepare for it, but I hope that I will get an A. That's not the kind of hope that I'm talking about. When we talk about hope, when we talk about biblical hope, what we are talking about is the settled conviction of a certain outcome. 
whether or not you see the means of that actually coming to pass. A settled conviction that something will turn out for the good, whether or not you see any possible way of that happening. That's hope. It is a heart conviction. And it's not confidence that's grounded in circumstances. It's confidence that's grounded in who God is and what He's doing. And so today, I want to close Acts and open Advent with a reminder of hope. Hopefully those things lay together very well here. And we're going to see, as we look through this closing chapter of the book of Acts, hope in spite of obstacles and hope in spite of opposition. As we close Paul's ministry here in Acts, we're going to look at hope first in spite of obstacles. And as we look at hope in spite of obstacles, we need to understand that that hope is grounded first in the idea of God's purposes. Paul's hope is grounded in an understanding that God has great purpose in all that he's doing. And really to see kind of the background of that, we need to understand where we are. As we've been moving through the book of Acts, we've been following the life and the ministry of Paul. We know that he was bitterly opposed in Jerusalem by the Jews there. He was kind of essentially saved from a mob situation by the the leader of the city there. He sent to Felix, the governor over in Caesarea, and Felix puts him on the back burner for two years. Felix is replaced by Festus, who determines that Paul is able to go to Rome to appeal his case there. And then Paul is approached by King Agrippa, again, the local king, not the Caesar, but the local king who comes to Caesarea. And Paul gives his defense. And Paul tells of his conversion and that marvelous experience that he had on the road to Damascus. And Agrippa says, you've done nothing worthy of death. In fact, if you hadn't appealed to Caesar, I probably would have let you go. And we might say, well, that was foolish. And to Paul, it is exactly as God planned. And from there, Paul sets out on his journey toward Rome, toward his appearance before Caesar. And the journey is difficult. All through Acts chapter 27, you see this this voyage that is fraught with difficulty, a ship that is tossed about by storms and waves, a life-threatening situation. And that kind of brings us to where we are in chapter 28. Because the crew, the soldiers guarding them, and all the prisoners wind up shipwrecked, In chapter 28, verse 1, after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. They end up being shipwrecked and stranded on an island called Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. And we say, maybe finally, after all of this turmoil, after all of these difficult circumstances, uh, maybe they have a little bit of safety here. Maybe now they can at least take a breath and recover for a moment. But look what happens in verse 3 right away. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. Out of the shipwreck and almost literally into the fire, and Paul's bitten on the hand by a snake. And when a viper bites you, everybody knows that that is a serious thing. Because when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. See, their understanding is that Paul is getting what's coming to him. They see a shipwrecked boat full of prisoners, and they assume that Paul is just another prisoner among many prisoners. No doubt he's a a terrible prisoner, like a murderer, uh, because although he might have escaped justice in the sea, justice on land got him with the snake. And so basically what it says is they were waiting for him to swell up or fall down and die. They're looking at Paul waiting for the poison to take effect and him to just kind of expire in front of them. But when they had waited a long time and they saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and they said he was a god. 
And this has happened a number of times in Paul's ministry where as the power of God is demonstrated, people assume that he is a God. And you've got to think that at some point these circumstances get a little bit frustrating. Can, can you imagine being told by God that you are going to Rome to preach the gospel, not being able to get there because the seas are so rough, the winds are so against you, winding up shipwrecked on an island called Malta, getting safely to shore through the wind and the waves and the storm, shivering cold on the beach, having a fire kindled and then a snake biting you, and then the people wrongly assuming that you're a god. There's a lot going on here. Uh, what's the point in all of that? Well, the point is this, is that Paul is never alarmed by his circumstances. In the middle of that storm, he's calm. As a snake bites him, there's no panic. When the ship is hopelessly blown off course, he's not distressed. Why is that? Is it because he doesn't think those things are dangerous? No, of course those things are dangerous. Storms kill. Snakes kill. It happens all the time. It happened frequently in the ancient Near East. But what had God told him? God had told him, you are going to Rome and you're going to speak the same truth that you did in Jerusalem. And Paul knows that God is able to achieve his purposes. He knows that no storm, no snake, no group of people could prevent that from happening. He sees his circumstances as an opportunity for hope. They're not something that is hindering his ability to do the ministry. His circumstances are the vehicle that God is using to accomplish his purposes, whether Paul can see the end result of that or not. And you can see what God did. The kind of chief of those lands welcomes them in. But that man, his name is Publius, he entertained them, but it happened that his father lay sick with a fever and dysentery. And in verse 8, Paul visits him and prays and put his hands on him and he heals this man's father. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And they honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. See, God not only delivered them safely through a storm, not only delivered Paul from a snake bite, not only made it clear that he wasn't a god, Paul was able to demonstrate the power of God to these people who might not have otherwise heard the gospel. It's another step in God's gospel proclamation to people. And so Paul was able to not only survive, not only kind of muddle through his circumstances, but he found great hope, even in spite of obstacles, because he understood God's greater purpose in them. But not only do God's purposes bring Paul hope in the midst of obstacles, but so do God's people. See, after three months, they set sail again. They make several stops. And I want you to find your way down to verse 13. It says, From there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, they came to a place called Puteoli. And there they found brothers. And when he says brothers, he means Christians. And we were invited to stay with them for seven days. Now, that's a pretty encouraging sign of hospitality because not only is it Paul, but you have to remember, it's Paul and all of those people saved off the boat. This is Paul and a group of soldiers and a group of prisoners. And these Christians show wonderful, beautiful, remarkable hospitality in that circumstance. And then after that, it says, we found brothers and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And this is about 170 miles from Rome. And then he says, and so we came to Rome. And verse 15, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. And once again, that's, 
that's something that we read past rather quickly because those names in those places don't really mean anything to us. But there's a slide that's coming up now. Then that's kind of the, that's the bottom of the boot, okay? On the right there, that's the heel, that's the toe, that's on the left there. You can see Putioli there, it's about 170 miles. And if you look, those other two cities that he mentions, they're not right up next to Rome. These are distances of over 40 and just over 30 miles from Rome. These believers, when they hear that Paul is coming, they come a long way out to meet him. And it says, on seeing them, in verse 15, Paul thanked God and took courage. This is a love that is demonstrated that ministers to Paul. Remember, travel isn't easy. Imagine if you had to get from here to Santa Clarita, but without the car. It's a long ride or a very long walk. And yet they go and they see Paul. And these are people that Paul had never met. Paul's written a letter to the church at Rome, but this is the first time that he's seen them in, purpose, in person. You can go back to the other note slide there. But they give up their time and they give up their resources simply to go uh, express their desire to see him. And when he sees him first, he thanks God. And I got to wonder, do you ever thank God for other believers? In all your time this week, and I know that many of you did, in your time this week that is set aside and dedicated toward Thanksgiving, did your thoughts ever turn to the people that are sitting around you today? And did you just thank God for them? If you didn't, can I encourage you maybe to consider doing that this week? To thank God for the people sitting around you. Yes, even that person, whoever that is that you're thinking of. The reminder that these people that we are surrounded by are God's gracious gift to us. To love us, to encourage us, to equip us, to strengthen us. It's a blessing to be surrounded by men and women who love the Lord. I think it would have been a great joy for Paul to see that the gospel was doing its work. That that church that he wrote to the book that we have is Romans, that letter that he wrote to them to see that it ministered to them, that there was a group of faithful, loving, committed believers. I got to think that that was very encouraging to him. And then it says not only did he thank God, but it also says he took courage. Don't skip over that. Why is Paul going to Rome? He's going to stand trial before Caesar. Now, Paul knows that he hasn't done anything wrong, that he hasn't done anything worthy of death. But there is no guarantee that on any given day, Caesar will be reasonable, merciful, or just. He very well could have been moving toward a death sentence. Now, we don't think he was at this point, but he had no assurances that he was going to get out of this alive. And I think we tend to think of Paul and maybe the other apostles as somehow immune to the temptations or even the fears that come over us. They're not. Paul's human. In Acts chapter 18, we didn't go through it, but Paul's ministering in Corinth, and the Lord appears to Paul, and he says, don't be afraid. He says, go on speaking and don't be silent. He says, I'll be with you, and that no one will attack or harm you. And the Lord says he has many people in this city. Why is it that the Lord had to come to Paul and remind him of those things? Because there was the threat of violence and harm. Because those are fearful things. In the middle of that storm that we just went through that got him to the island of Malta, an angel of the Lord appears to Paul at night and says, don't be afraid. The ship's lost, but everyone's life will be preserved. Why do they have to say that? Why does the angel have to come and say that? Because storms are a fearful thing. Because looking at that, the understanding is that everyone on board is lost. 
Paul doesn't have to be superhuman. He, he's simply faithful. Fear isn't something that was foreign to them that only you and I have to deal with. Fear is a reality for all believers. And as he sees these precious people, knowing what he is about to go through, or really knowing who he is about to be in front of and not knowing what he's going to go through, seeing other believers gives him strength. And that's something that we ought to be reminded of, that you and I are called to strengthen one another. It is a blessing to be involved in the life and the body of the church because you and I are called to encourage each other, to bear one another's burdens. And sometimes our lives look downright bleak, frustrating, and maybe hopeless. And it is a powerful thing to have a brother or sister in Christ come alongside you and help point you back toward truth. You and I have the ability to give each other real courage, not like the trite sayings and the pat on the back and I'm sure everything will be okay, because there's a lot in this life that is not what we might call okay. You and I have the opportunity to love one another, to meet practical needs, to encourage each other with real truth. Truth that reminds us that God is not absent from these situations. To remind each other that we serve a sovereign God who is in complete control. That we serve an omnipotent God, an all-powerful, a can-do-anything God who will absolutely accomplish His will in every situation. We get to remind each other that we serve a God who's promised to be with us even in the valley of the shadow of death. Not that death isn't a possibility, but that we never have to walk through that alone. Paul was able to find great hope even in the midst of severe obstacles to what we would, say, what we would call obstacles to ministry because he understood those things. But one of the constant challenges to Paul wasn't just physical obstacles to ministry, of course, it was opposition. The idea that there were people who not only hated his message, but who hated him. And it's likely that you and I will face opposition at some point in our life if you're not right now. Maybe it's to your gospel proclamation. Maybe it's to the fact that you won't conform to the understanding and the ideas of the world around you. Maybe it's just someone who has consistent relational struggle against you for whatever reason. We need to be reminded that there's great hope in the middle of opposition. We need to be reminded where Paul found his hope and why that still matters to us. And one of the reasons for hope, even in opposition, once again, is God's people. Not in exactly the same way, not in the idea that we will come across God's people, although we certainly will. But I want to look for a minute at why that mattered to Paul. Paul thanked God. Paul took courage. In verse 16, when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. But after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews and when they had gathered, he said to him, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. See, now what happens is Paul is coming to Rome and he sends for the Jewish leaders. Remember how this whole journey started. The hatred of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And now he sends for the Jewish leaders in Rome essentially to find out their understanding of the situation to make sure they know who he is. Paul had... A tremendous burden for his people. His ministry would primarily be to the Gentiles, but Paul's heart broke for the Jewish people. In fact, when he wrote to the Romans, 
In Romans 9, verse 1, he says this. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, if I could give up my salvation for theirs, I would do it. You realize that they hated him? That at every city he stopped in, it was consistently the Jews who opposed his message and who threatened his life? And his heart breaks, not because the Jews are mean. His heart breaks, not because they want to kill him. His heart breaks because they're alienated from the gospel. And this is not a main point of the passage, but I have to stop and think, how often do I respond to those that I see as my enemies that way? How often does my heart break for the people that hate me? Not because they hate me and it hurts, but because their hatred demonstrates how far they are from the God who could restore them to life. Boy, that's a powerful way to think about those that are opposing us. So Paul calls the leaders and he tells them about why he's there and the conflict with the Jews in Jerusalem. And it turns out the Jewish leaders in Rome haven't heard anything about him. So they set aside a day to hear from him. They're going to hear from Paul's own mouth why he's there. And that happens in verse 23. It says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, a couple of really important things there. First of all, Paul preached to them from morning till evening. You have it easy. Second, Paul's preaching Christ from the Old Testament here. A reminder that Jesus does not come out of nowhere. How often did we see over and over in Matthew's Gospel that the people should have known everything he did, everything he said, the way that he said it, the righteousness that he lived in his life with, everything that he was screamed about who he was. Every bit and piece of that ministry was a sign that pointed directly to the fact that he was the Messiah, the promised anointed one, the one who had come to redeem his people. The people should have known. And now Paul uses that same evidence. They haven't seen Christ, but they have the Old Testament. And all that Paul does is he lines up that expectation with the historical reality of who Jesus was and makes this compelling and clear case that he is the promised Messiah. And look at verse 24. It says, And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And in many ways, it is the same story as everywhere else that Paul goes. Paul pours out his heart. He preaches with all that he has. He gives this compelling case that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that his sacrifice is the way to restore what sin has broken. And some believe. But at the end of it all, no matter how passionately and clearly he preaches, no matter how clear the evidence states the case, many and most will not believe. I don't know if you've ever had to give someone the same message over and over whether you've ever had to appeal to someone with the same evidence over and over and they simply refuse to have their minds changed about something, it can be frustrating. It can be heartbreaking. It can feel hopeless, to say the least. Knowing how deeply Paul longed for the salvation of these people, I'm sure the temptation was there for this to be at least disheartening. New place, new start, 
No background of hatred. They didn't know who Paul was. And so he has this great opportunity to present the gospel to them. And some believed, but most don't. Well, where's the hope when the response is largely rejected? Well, the hope is this, that it's God's people. Not in the sense that they came around him like they did to strengthen him in the obstacles, but the very fact that God has his people. See, the Jews are going to reject the message, and we're going to look at that in a bit. But there's hope in the fact that some listen. It's the same encouragement that he was given in Corinth, that God has his people, that even among the Jews who are largely hardened, there's a remnant that come to saving faith. But not only is there hope in opposition because of God's people, but there's also hope in opposition because of God's purposes. Again, very similar to what we saw in the first part. Because the reality is that most of them will not listen. And look at verse 25. Verse 25, disagreeing among themselves. So it starts an argument, essentially. Disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Paul says this closing thing to them. He says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Now those words should sound fairly familiar. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 13 as he moved to teaching the people in parables. It's the calling of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and that great vision that he has in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. This is part of that commission that the Lord gives him in that time. And that prophet, initially in Isaiah, is sent to a stubborn and sinful people. And he's sent with a warning that their sin has consequences. He's sent with a promise that judgment is coming. And he's sent with a greater promise that restoration is possible if only you would turn from your sin and return to the Lord who bought you. Jesus came. And he gave that same warning. Judgment is coming, but the same promise of hope in repentance and restoration. And now Paul gives that same warning. This is the truth, that judgment comes for rejection, but there is hope in turning. Where's the hope in that? It's in this. Their rejection wasn't a surprise. This hasn't somehow deviated from God's purpose that he laid down in the beginning. God is not sitting in heaven, wringing his hands, wondering where he went wrong with his chosen people. Jesus did not ascend and sit down at the right hand of the Father and wonder what he could have done differently so that the Jews would respond rightly. And Paul recognizes that his ministry, his preaching, all the passion, all of his blood, sweat, and tears, literally, that he has poured into this, he understands that that's not a waste. That it's not a failure. Because even the rejection of Israel was known by God. And even in that, there's a purpose. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. This hardening of Israel opened the doors for the gospel proclamation to the Gentiles. How did the Acts begin? Jesus saying, you will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, 
Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here you and I sit in Camarillo, California, about as far from Jerusalem as you can get without going the other way and moving back towards it, and the vast majority of us having no genetic connection to ethnic Israel. And that gospel has come to us. That same gospel that saved in Jerusalem saves here today. And as you read Romans 9-11, through 11, that same thought runs through what Paul writes there. He opens Romans 11 by asking about whether God is rejected of people. He says, if Israel is hardened, and they are. If Israel has rejected their Messiah, and they have, then does that mean that God has abandoned them? And Paul says the answer is absolutely not. And for the first evidence, he points to the fact that there is still a remnant that are being saved, and that's exactly what we saw here, that some believed that God, through His grace and His kindness, continues to call some of those people to Himself. And it's not because Paul's a great communicator, although he certainly was. It's because of God's grace. And he goes on to say in Romans 9.11 that through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. He says that like a wild olive shoot, we've been grafted into this olive tree that is Israel. And you say, that's great. Hope for the Gentiles, we will certainly take it. But not so much for Israel. But you have to understand that God's not done with his people. He's not forgotten his promises. In Romans 11.25, Paul says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. And then he quotes again from Isaiah. Not Isaiah 6, where he's sent to a stubborn and sinful people, but there he quotes from Isaiah 59. A time when Israel has been disciplined, but a time when she's been broken, when her eyes are opened and her ears are unplugged, and when Israel does turn to her, her Messiah. He points toward a future redemption. And here's the point. Paul pursued ministry. He was obedient, even in the face of opposition, and severe opposition, not because he thought that he would eventually get through to these stubborn people. Not because he knew that if he could just find the right words, that he could overcome their arguments. It was because he understood that God had a purpose in all that he did. When God opened the eyes of some to hear and respond, it was a result of his kindness and his grace and his sovereign plan. And when God allowed their sinful hearts to maintain their stopped-up ears and their closed eyes, it was equally a part of his plan. And in the end, God would prove himself faithful to every single one of his promises. He was faithful to Israel, and Paul knew that he would be faithful to Paul. So whatever the response was, Paul obeyed with this full hope that God knew exactly what he was doing. And that's exactly what Acts closes with. It's obedience. Verse 30 says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul's there again for two years. It's most likely that at the end of this, he'll be released. But even while he's there, even while he doesn't know the outcome, he does exactly what he's supposed to. He preaches, he makes disciples, 
And God sees fit to allow that to go on without hindrance. Now eventually, Paul is going to be tried again, and that will end much differently. Paul will lose his life for the sake of the gospel. But he knows that even in that, it's not without hope or purpose. That no matter the response, God is working out his purposes in the lives of his people. You and I can be a church with great hope, a church of hope in ultimate victory. I mean, this is a time of thanksgiving, and for many of you, that might not have been easy this week. It is entirely possible that in the middle of the strains of work and difficult family dynamics, potentially health issues, maybe you found it hard to find something to be thankful for. Maybe we come to this first week of Advent and we light a nice purple candle and we say that it's for hope, and maybe you're genuinely wondering whether there's anything you can really be hopeful for. We need to be reminded that the church is a hopeful people. But it's not because we just close our eyes and assume that things will somehow get better. We don't have a hope because the promotion will come through or because the relationship will get fixed or because the scan will come back clean. God can do all those things and even more, and we pray to that end, absolutely. But you and I have hope no matter what the circumstances are because we have a hope that's not fixed and dependent on our circumstances. We have a hope in real victory. We have the hope that is, as was read in our Advent reading, a living hope that's associated with being with God, fit to worship Him through all eternity. But I also want you to see that that hope matters for today. It matters right now. Lots of times we talk about our hope and we kind of attach it to heaven and being out there somewhere and we just have to muddle through until then. You have to understand that you and I can have a real and meaningful and lasting hope right now in our lives, every day right now, because God is working in our circumstances. God is not waiting to provide hope at the end of our circumstances. God is providing hope through our circumstances. You realize that in whatever circumstance you're facing, and I have no idea what all of you are facing on an individual level, you have the ability to do something that has eternal and lasting value. I was talking with one of my kids this week, and I need to hear this more often than not. If someone were to say, I will give you $10,000 to respond rightly in this situation, how motivated would you be to respond rightly in that situation? Do you suppose it would be easier to hold back the witty response? the word against the driver that cut you off. Maybe to guard your heart against bitterness to someone who hurt you. If I were to give you $10,000 to do that, do you suppose you could maintain it? I think probably. I'm not going to, so don't get that kind of hopes up. But what if I told you you could have something infinitely more valuable? We talk in Christianese about treasures in heaven and we use it so flippantly. I did the dishes today, treasures in heaven. I opened the car door for someone, treasures in heaven. You understand that if I did give you $10,000 for doing the right thing, that would last, we all know, not very long. And even if you saved and invested it and it returned 10,000 fold on that investment, it dies when you do. But every time you and I are faithful in our circumstances, we gain eternal reward, and it's so very worth it. Church, whatever you're going through, 
whatever hopeless, painful, difficult circumstance you are going through, God is not absent from that. He is working to produce in you an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond anything this world could offer. So what do we need to think through as we go this week? Three things. First of all, there is hope in the finished work of Christ. You've heard it before. If you've been here, you need to hear it again. There is no hope outside of the gospel. This Advent season, we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. And that coming was only part of the overall work. Christmas isn't the end. Christmas is the wonderful, beautiful, faithful prelude to Easter, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you are still stuck in your sins, if you are left to justify yourself for your sins, then there is no hope in that. But there is lasting and real hope that comes through the gospel that says that Jesus Christ did what you and I cannot, that he took the penalty, the right and just wrath of God against sin, so that you and I could be covered with his righteousness. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, then you will be chasing hope for the rest of your life and you will never actually find anything that is lasting and that matters. That can change today and in an instant. Come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn and follow Him. And find a real hope that is good through any and every circumstance. Second, we place our hope in a faithful God. Guys, people fail. This might be surprising, but you fail. I fail. The most faithful friend, the most faithful pastor, the most faithful spouse cannot demonstrate perfect faithfulness. But our hope isn't in people. Our hope isn't in our own strength of being good enough. Our hope is wrapped up in a sovereign God who is good and faithful. Why do you have hope today? Because you have an entire Bible with testimony after testimony of God's perfect track record of faithfulness. Why is it that you and I need to be deeply involved in one another's lives? Because we are called to give testimony of God's faithfulness because there are some times that I am quick to forget and need to hear it. Hope is wrapped up in having a faithful God who loves us and called us to himself. And finally, we can have hope in the final word. Hope because we know the end. See, Isaiah wrote about these people 700 years before Christ was born. And he was confident in what was coming. It wasn't a surprise to God. But we could read through the revelation of John and see the outcome of all of this. We know that in the end, there are 10,000, 10,000 from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne, casting down their crowns, crying out for all eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. See, when it came to the end of Paul's life, he knew that he would face death. And he writes 2 Timothy, and I think that's probably his final letter. Paul's final word is full of hope. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 7, he says, I fought the good fight. I've run the race. I finished it. I've kept the faith. And he says, I know that there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He says he entrusts himself to the righteous judge. Imagine that. He's going to die before an unrighteous judge. Nero was anything but just. But Paul is able to entrust himself to the righteous judge who will award me 
on that day. And he says, and not just me. He says that reward, that reward is there for everyone who has loved his appearing. Christian, have hope. Because although you don't know the next part in your story, you know the end of the story. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would make us a faithful people because we are a hopeful people. You are worthy of our trust because you are perfectly good, perfectly faithful, and you will do exactly what you've promised to do. Lord, I pray that our hearts would overflow with hope this Advent season. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.